you have your Bibles with you, let's open up to the book of Deuteronomy. And we are going to uh, enter in. Oh, Lord have mercy. He does. Lord has mercy every day. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, I'm not even going to try to fake it, guys. So uh, don't go anywhere. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, we're going to pick it up. Actually, we'll pick it up right at chapter 31. Verse 1. No, it's all right, man. I got special pair now. I'll be right back. She said she needs more table hostesses for the tea, and she's desperate. I Means she's on the brink of paying you to do it. I don't want to. <clears throat> yeah, I, I hate. Yeah, hold on a little longer. I hate to make myself look stupid, but they were in my pocket. <clears throat> I do it all the time. I walk around looking for them on top of my head sometimes. <laughs> Chapter 31, we're coming in to the very end. We, we're, we won't finish tonight, but next week we'll finish the book of Deuteronomy. Moses' final words to the children of Israel. He's, uh, he's right now, we're going to see him gather together the next leader, who's going to be Joshua, which will be the next book we're going into. And he's going to be encouraging Joshua and... Uh, Presenting Joshua to the people, presenting Joshua before the Lord, and God's going to be doing a neat work preparing them. Now, it's kind of a, on one hand, it's kind of a depressing note because Moses is going to be telling the people almost verbatim what we've studied on Sunday night in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And that is that the people are going to enter into a time of idol worship. They're going to begin to, to enter into all sorts of, of, uh, false worship, bad stuff that they're going to be going into. And God's telling them that they're going to do it way back in Deuteronomy. God lays out for them, hey guys, you're going to mess up. You're going to, you're going to do things I have told you not to do. You're going to do things you shouldn't do. And I know you're going to do it. And because you're going to do it, I'm going to send you out into all the other nations. You're going to go to a variety of other places. God laying all these things out for them. But as he does it, What it should do for you and I is say, man, God knows the end from the beginning. Because Deuteronomy is early in their history. And God says, you guys, you're not going to follow me. And he's going to tell us why. And it lays out for you and I areas in our life that we need to be careful of. And some things that we got to just come to grips with. Okay, first thing you got to come to grips with. We do not grow closer to God in times of plenty and excess. We don't grow closer to God in good times. 
I'll tell you right now, across the board in the United States, when the economy is up, tithes are down. When the economy is in the tank, tithes are up. We see throughout Israel's history, when times of plenty and times are good and everything's just falling together, the people forget God. And the same pattern repeats itself over and over and over again. The people fall into a time of chastisement or a time of difficulty in their life. And they call upon God. And God meets them there. God delivers them. They enter into a time of blessing. And what happens? They forget God. It's a warning to us and also a challenge to us. The challenge to me as I look at the Word of God is simply this. God lays out this word to the church of Smyrna in the book of Revelation. The church of Smyrna is a persecuted church. It's going through horrible times. And God says to the church of Smyrna, be faithful to death. And I will give you the crown of life. What God doesn't say is, I'm going to bail you out of trouble in just a minute. He doesn't tell them that. Why? Because... The church, when did the church grow the greatest degree? Times of persecution. How is it that God got the church to leave Jerusalem and go around the world? Persecution. How do we see the Reformation happening in church history? Persecution. Over and over and over again. God's people have to learn to be comfortable in times of difficulty and hardship. You've got to learn to be comfortable in that because that's where we grow. That's where we shine the brightest. That's where God does the, the greatest degree of, of work in our lives is when we're going through hard times. The, time that, the, the times that Kathy and I are closest to the Lord are times where we're struggling, times where we're going through stuff, times where you know, we're hurting because of, of things that other people that we love are going through. That's when we grow the best. So in my prayer life, I want to be, I want to have the attitude like the church of Smyrna that says, not God deliver me from all this hardship, but Lord help me shine in it. I want to shine in it. And, and what is the prayer that the, that the psalmist would declare to us? Give us this day what? Our daily bread. Why? The Proverbs tells us, listen, I don't want too much so I forget you and so little that I steal and and cause others to blaspheme your name just give me today my daily bread give me what I need right now not all my wants I want to walk with you and see that's the challenge of the nation of Israel they're about to get their dreams right promised land man folks they're moving into houses they didn't build they're they're going to harvest from fields they didn't plant They're going to enter into a time of unprecedented prosperity. And they're going to forget God, who got them there. And that's the challenge Moses is laying out to them as we look at chapter 31 and 32. Pay attention. Don't forget God. Don't forget God. Don't grow into the place of laziness. Here's what he says. And Moses... Chapter 31, verse 1, went and spoke these words to all of Israel. And he said to them, I'm 120 years old today, and I can no longer go out and come in. 
Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. Now what Moses is saying now is, God is moving that mantle of leadership from Moses to Joshua. We're going to see in a moment, Moses is still able to truck because he's going to go to the top of Mount, Mount uh, Nebo, which is not some little mountain. So it's quite the hike for a 120-year-old. And he's going to go up there on that mountain and, and be before the Lord when he goes to be with the Lord. So, But God is moving that mantle, and he said, you're not even going to cross the Jordan. See, if he said you're not going to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, that means he could pass the mantle on to Joshua, and he could just go over as a regular Joe. But God said, you're not even crossing the Jordan. You're not even going. And we don't want to forget the reasons. We don't want to forget what's going on with him. Because sometimes we look at him and we say, man, this is, this is a, an excessively harsh punishment that God's m- meeting out to Moses. You know, not being able to enter into the promised land for one slip-up. But let's not forget what the slip-up was. He was painting a picture, right? The rock that followed them, that gave them living water, was a picture of Jesus Christ, who would be smitten, stricken one time. And after that, all we would have to do is call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we could receive living water. The second time Moses went to the rock, the Lord said, speak to the rock and the water will come out. But Moses misrepresented God. He ruined the picture and he smote the rock two times. And scripture lays out, Jesus would only be smitten once. The picture was ruined. Misrepresentation of the Lord was done. And on top of that, do not miss out on this point. Not many of you should desire to be teachers. Or they will fall under what? Stricter condemnation, right? God expects more for those whom he's revealed himself to. Moses spoke to the Lord face to face, man. God expected he hold, held him responsible for what he knew. And so he said, you won't enter into that promised land. In verse 3, the Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you. He will dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. Who's going to give him the victory? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who's going to give you the victory in your life? Lord Jesus Christ. Other people may lead you as Joshua is going to go. First it's the Lord, then it's Joshua, then it's the people. And so here Joshua is going to lead them in. And the Lord will do to them as he did in Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites in their land when he destroyed them. Moses is saying, listen, I'm not irreplaceable. No leader is irreplaceable. Because it is God ultimately who leads. It's like pulling your hand out of a bucket of water. It's going to be filled right up. Moses, who was undeniably the greatest leader still, he, they, they picture him as the greatest leader Israel ever had. But when Moses was taken out of the way, did Israel flounder? They couldn't move anywhere? They couldn't enter into victory? No, they followed Joshua. They were never without a shepherd. And that's the point that God's making here. There's no shepherd that is irreplaceable. I remember when 
early days of Joshua Springs. Joshua Springs <clears throat> is growing. It's becoming uh, pretty big, pretty big machinery. And the elders got together at the elders meeting and they said, you know, we need to pull out a life insurance policy on Pastor Gerald. Because if he dies, I don't know what we're going to do. I think God will take over. Hopefully God's doing this thing from the beginning. You know, we want to be prudent, but, you know, on one hand, great. Prudent is great, but on the other hand, hey, this is a work of God, not a work of man. God does the work. No leader, no leader is irreplaceable. And Moses shows us that. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. So be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. And He will not leave you or forsake you. Moses is saying, it's not about me. God goes with you. Only you be strong and of good courage. Now why does God have to say that so often? Yes, in case you're wondering, you're thinking you're the exception to the rule. Oh, I am strong and of good courage. No. God wouldn't say it so much if we were strong and of good courage. What he's saying is, hey, where we got to put our faith and trust in the Lord and follow him. Walk with him. Be committed to understanding where God's directing you and what God's doing. Take God off of that little shelf or out of that little corner in your life that we want to coop him up in. And let him be God, who he is. Amazing, incredible, the God of all creation. The one who calls the living or the dead as though they were alive to life again. Follow the life of Jesus. See how hard it was to be a dead guy around him. Wasn't very easy. Master, my daughter's sick. Will you come to my house and heal her? Yeah, yeah, I'll follow you. That's Jackie paraphrase. On the way, everybody wants him. Everybody wants him to heal. A woman who has a 12-year issue of blood touches him. He pauses and talks to her. All this while, it's taking him time to get to the guy's house. Finally, a servant comes and says, Lord, never mind. It's too late. Is there such a thing to God? There's no such thing as too late with God. But God, if I don't have an answer by midnight tonight, it's too late. No, it's not too late. The answer might be no, which we never like to hear. But it's never too late. Ever. So he said, oh, Lord, forget it. My daughter's dead. You don't need to come. And Jesus said, if you believe, bring me to your house. So they bring him to the house. He walks in and he tells all those who are mourning, don't mourn. She's only sleeping. And I'm here to wake her up. No, she's not asleep. We know somebody dead when they're dead. So what did Jesus do? Put them out. Get out the house. And he walked over to the little girl and he says, Talitha kumi. My little child, rise. And she sat up. How stoked was that father then? Another day, Jesus is walking into Jerusalem. And as he's walking into Jerusalem, out comes a widow who has nothing and no one, and her only son is in a casket. Come walking out of the city, hopeless. Jesus walks by and reaches up and touches the casket. 
And here he comes out of the casket. It's tough to be a dead guy around Jesus. It's tough. Lazarus in the ground for four days. Did he stay? No. No, because God is able. And we need to start living our life like he is. And stop living our life in fear and trepidation and thinking this is all there is of Christianity. No, we're barely scratching the surface of what that God, what a living God, what the God who is able can do in our life. Barely scratching the surface. What can be accomplished in a life that is totally surrendered to him? That only wants to hear his voice. That only wants to be led by him. That's seeking God's will for every moment. That when he faces that mountain that won't move, he's able to say, I have faith of a mustard seed, which isn't very much, by the way. And you just tell that mountain to get into the sea and it's out of the way. That's the life Jesus was talking about when he said, I've come to give you life and life more abundant. But folks, we tend to walk in a less abundant life. Because we take Jesus and we make room for him in our life. And he doesn't just want room. He wants our life. All of it. Every bit. And until we surrender all those different parts, instead of just that corner, we're just like the children of Israel. And we're gonna, our walk is going to look like this, up and down. Victory, defeat. Victory, defeat. Isn't that how we feel? That's how I feel in my life a lot of times. Victory, defeat. Victory, boy, I wish I could just get on the plane, you know. Let's just stay up there. That's where Jesus wants us to be. Where he is going before us and delivering our enemies into our hand. What enemies? I don't know, whatever you're struggling with. Whatever the issue in your life is, whatever the sin that so easily ensnares or the weight that's holding you back, that's where you're going into the promised land and Jesus will give you the victory. We forget he's already won, huh? And we tend to enter into battle as though it's already been lost. Instead of entering to battle, remembering it's already won. It's over, man. I just got to surrender. I just got to let Jesus be who he is. Let God be who he is. And I got to get out of his way and stop putting him in a little bitty box as though this is the only place he can minister or work in my life. <clears throat> we want to get out of his way. We want to be strong and of good courage and not be afraid and let God be God. He goes on and says, listen, and you will cause them to inherit it. You see that at the end of verse 7? He says, Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of Israel, be strong and of good courage for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them and you will be successful joshua you're gonna be successful because he's gonna follow the lord isn't he he's gonna meet the lord real early in the book of joshua isn't he he's gonna go out looking trying to make plans of the big city of jericho and he's gonna come across this fella 
all dressed in army, the captain of the Lord's army. You can say, whose side are you on? And the captain of the Lord's army, who is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, is going to say, I'm not on anybody's side. Are you on my side? Or if you're on my side, we're good to go. I'm not on your side, I'm not on their side. I'm on the Lord's side. Come on, let's go. And Joshua's going to follow him. He's going to declare at the end of his ministry, choose this day. Remember we talked about that last week. Who you're going to serve. As for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. Without reservation. With everything we are. And we're going to have victory. That's what we want. Victory. The church needs victory. Stop hiding. Stop polishing its armor. Get out and get in the fight. We're at the men's retreat. I I, I told uh, Jeff Masters, I got together with Jeff Masters, and I said that he's going to teach a session. He was less than thrilled at different times about the concept. And one of the things he told me, he says, Jackie, man, you want me to teach on the armor of the Lord? Man, my armor's all beat up. I said, Jeff, who do you want to go in battle with? The guy with the shiny, pretty armor? Or the dude whose armor's got dings and dents and scratches like he's been in it? I don't know about you. When I was in the Marine Corps, we followed the dude that looked the most beat up. Because he'd been in it before. Nothing is as scary as that second lieutenant showing up all just brand new out of school saying, Come on, fellas, let's go. Uh, Gunny, Gunny. We want to follow Gunny. Hey, that's how it is, right? So we want to get into the battle. We want to get into the battle, fight from victory, and, and experience everything that the Lord has for us. And the Lord, he's the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. That's three verses in a row say the same thing. I think that's important for us to grasp. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Don't be afraid or dismayed. Trust in the Lord your God and he will give you victory. So Moses wrote this law. Who wrote it? Moses. You have to go to seminary to get into an argument about who wrote the law. In seminary, they will say, writing wasn't invented at the time of Moses. So it was only written at 400 B.C. Eh, Wrong answer. Along comes the archaeologists, and what do they discover? Lo and behold, lo and behold, they discover not only did writing exist before the time of Moses, but man had already begun to write down complex legal system before Moses. So... What what did the Bible say? Who's the Bible say wrote it? Moses. Who did Jesus say wrote it? Moses. Who do you think wrote it? Moses. Right. You, You just have to get a doctorate, go through school, and then you become smarter than the Bible. And you can say Moses didn't write it. But the Bible very clearly says, so Moses wrote the law and delivered it to the priests. That's the first five books of the Bible. The sons of Levi who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release at the Feast of Tabernacle, 
When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place that he chooses, which originally is going to be Shiloh and eventually be Jerusalem, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Do you hear what he said? Every seven years at the appointed time, at the Feast of Tabernacles, you will read the entire law, five first books, of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, in front of all the people. That's pretty clear, right? That's pretty clear what the, what the word lays out. So the first time we see this public reading is Joshua 8.30. The next time we see it is during the reign of Jehoshaphat, 500 years later. Then... After Jehoshaphat, we see it in Josiah, 250 years after Jehoshaphat. What do we see? The people didn't stay anchored to the word, and they drifted. Very clearly, God said, seven years. It's one of the reasons why I try to make that our goal for having gone through the entire word of God. If you come... Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. For seven years, you will have studied every single book in the Bible. And we'll be starting over again. Every seven years. The Lord said, every seven years, read the law before the people. So that they would understand that he's hold fast to the word. Now what would happen to us if we didn't read the Bible for 500 years? Do you understand why Israel got all wacky? How they got all out of shape? Because they disassociated themselves from the word. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, totally devoted to the importance of the word of God. If we avoid the word of God, we don't spend time in the word of God, we don't study the word of God, we don't apply the word of God, we're going to drift just like they did. God says, here's what I expect. This is what I This is what I desire for my people. This is how he wants us to be. This is how he wants us to study. Verse 12, he says, Gather the people together, men and women, little ones, and the stranger who's in your gate, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you crossed the Jordan to possess. As long as you're there, stay dedicated to reading the word. Now, you know what occurred each of those times when the people dedicated themselves to the word of God? Revival. If we want revival in our communities, we have to be dedicated to at least a couple of things. One of those, to the study of the word of God. The other, prayer. One of the things great revivals across history have in common is a core group of men and women that prayed for revival consistently, sometimes for 20 years before the revival came, but consistently prayed. God's people consistently focused in his word. And the Holy Spirit moves. That's how it works. That's how it works. And that's what the Lord is laying out here for the nation. Verse 14, he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Behold, the days approach when you must die. Wouldn't that be a great word from the Lord? Yeah, i got to tell you, if I ever go to the doctor and it's bad news, I just assume him tell me. Yeah, you know, Jackie, it doesn't look too good, brother. I don't know how much longer you got. I'd like to know that. At least then, I can take advantage of the time we have, right? Doesn't the scripture say, redeem the time for the days are evil? Doesn't the scripture tell us, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might have the heart of wisdom that says we don't have forever? And nobody's guaranteed tomorrow, and we need to be after it, busy. Here the Lord says to Moses, hey, Tim, you're, you're coming close. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. God chose the next leader. Right? Do people vote? Did they say, uh, you know, we really like this fellow over here, Korah. He's a pretty good guy. No, when the, when the people got behind Korah, what happened? The ground opened up, ate him, and closed. I don't think God wanted Korah. God chose Joshua. He said, bring Joshua to me. Now, you know the other thing we know about Joshua? He was at home in the tabernacle. How do we know? You guys remember way back when we were studying Exodus? Around Exodus chapter 33, I think, Exodus 33, 11. Moses is going to the tabernacle, and he'd go to the tabernacle and come out and go to the tabernacle and come out. But you know what it said about Joshua? He stayed at the tabernacle. He wanted to be the presence of God. He was at home in God's presence. How do you lead people someplace where you can't understand or you've never been? We want to lead our families. We want to lead our youth. We want to lead the children. We want to lead whatever. We can't if we're not in his presence, if we're not comfortable in the presence of God. We've got to learn to be comfortable in his presence, comfortable sitting at his feet, comfortable <clears throat> desiring to be with him. So Moses and Joshua went, presented themselves in a tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. The Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Moses... Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with other gods of foreigners of the land where they, where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. So God's telling them what's going to happen. Moses, you're about to die. Let me tell you what's in the future for your people. My anger will be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles will befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. It's important. We're going to study as we go through the prophets, as we continue to work our way through the Old Testament. We're going to come to days, times, when the Shekinah, or the Kabod, the glory of God, departed. I think one of the prophets is going to name a child, or the priest is going to name a child, Ichabod. You guys heard Ichabod, right? Ichabod, you know Ichabod Crane, the, what's, what's, is that? The headless horseman? Well, Ichabod means the glory has departed. The glory has departed. Speaking of the Shekinah, the Kabod, the glory of God, wasn't in the temple anymore because God wasn't with his people because God's people weren't worshiping. God's people weren't worshiping in spirit and truth. They were worshiping all these false gods, doing all this bogus stuff, going through all the ritual and all these traditions. 
The next time the glory appears, he's wearing flesh. And his name is Yahoshua, Joshua, or in Greek, Jesus. Jesus, God is salvation. So he's telling them what's going to happen. I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done. (laughs) Excuse me. In that they have turned to other gods. Now therefore, write down this song for yourselves. Hey Moses, I want you to write down a song. And teach it to the children of Israel. And put it to their mouths. That this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten, listen, and filled themselves, listen, and grown fat. Then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. When times are good, people forget God. So if you're wondering why the Lord never lets you win the lotto, Now you know. God's doing you a favor. God's doing you a favor. Stay with him. And it shall be when many evils and troubles come upon them, that this song will testify against him as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in their mouths, in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. So God says, I already know what they're going to do. And he tells them, you read Isaiah, read Ezekiel, read Jeremiah, almost word for word, what God's saying is exactly where the people found themselves. Exactly word for word. Therefore, Moses Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. And he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, be strong and of good courage, For you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So it was, when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, said, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion... And your stiff neck, if today while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Gather to me all the elders of your tribes, your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you. Excuse me, and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. He begins in chapter 32 with the introduction in the first four verses. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, and my speech distill as the dew. As raindrops on tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, 
the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-V-H. And I ascribe greatness to our God, for He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice, a God of truth. And without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Who's the rock? Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells the rock is Jesus. What did Moses say the rock is? The rock is God. If the rock is God and Jesus is the rock, therefore Jesus is Thank you. Very simple. Takes us another couple thousand years to mess that one up. <clears throat> Very simple what the word is laying out for us. Now in verse 5 and 6 we have the accusation that the children have forsaken their father. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? And then from verse 7 through 14, he's going to recount all the blessings that God has given. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. He's talking about the Tower of Babel and when the nations were divided and the inheritance that God divided among the people of Israel based on their number. For the Lord's portion is his people, and Jacob is the place of his inheritance. The Lord's portion is his people. That's an important concept to grasp, because my portion is the Lord. And his portion is me. And that's what matters. Everything else is shadows and dust. Chasing after the wind. What really matters is drawing near to the Lord. And what God really is concerned about is drawing near to his people. And Jacob, his place. Jacob. What does Jacob mean? Liar, deceiver, good for nothing, Jacob. What is it when Jacob's trucking with the Lord? Israel, governed by God, following the Lord, seeking him. Isn't it interesting which name he chose? Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Hey, God knows who we are. He knows our frame. He knows we're just dust. And he loves us anyway. We think God expects a lot out of us. Do you expect a lot out of a dirt clod? It's just a dirt clod. That's what the scripture says we are. Dirt clods. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. It's when that dirt clod is surrendered to the Lord and the water of the word is poured upon it that we discover that that clod of dirt becomes moldable clay through which God is able to design perfect a vessel that brings him honor 
That's what we want to be. He found them in a desert land and in a wasteland and howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept them as the apple of his eye. And as an eagle stirs up its nest and hovers over its youngs, its youngs, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up and carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him. And there was no foreign God with him. The word for eagle is the word nashir. It is uh, the, the griffin. It's a griffin eagle still in Israel today. Still in Israel today. Pretty hardy, tough looking eagle. And the eagle still functions the same way. When it wants to move, it's young. It makes the nest uncomfortable. And the youngs, all of a sudden, they put sticks in the way. They're poking it and bumping it. And the next thing you know, mom turns around and poof, gives a little boot. And the youngin takes off. Oh, do you ever feel like that with the Lord? Oh. But the scriptures indicate to us. And we see in the life of the eagle that the eagle swoops down and catches a young right on its back. And then takes it back up in the nest. First lesson. Do you know how long it takes for an eagle to mature? Three years. That seemed like a long time, huh? I thought it would be much quicker. But no, it takes three years from hatch to mature eagle. Three years. That's a long time. That's a long time. But Mama Eagle is patient. And the Lord says, this is how I directed you. This is how I moved you. This is how I guided you. And I carried you on my back. And I watched out for you. And sometimes it feels like, ah, but the Lord's coming. His wings will catch us. He will carry us home. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. Curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with the fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan from the north and goats with the choicest wheat and you drank wine, the blood of the grapes. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Jeshurun is a poetic name for Israel. It means my dear upright people. My dear upright people. It's a little pet name God has for the nation of Israel. Sometimes they're being knuckleheads. So my dear upright people grew fat and kicked. You grew fat. You grew thick. You are obese. Then you forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. Again, when times are good, we forget God. Scornfully esteemed The rock of his salvation. How would you express the treatment of Jesus among his people? I would call it scornfully esteemed. Isaiah 53 would say the same thing. We esteemed him stricken by God, smitten, and we hid our faces as it were from him. Scripture goes on to tell us they sacrificed to demons and not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. They turn instead to worshiping demons, false gods, idols, are demons. 
They're praying to demons. They're worshiping demons. And the Lord says, you are not mindful of the God who fathered you. You have forgotten him and the rock who begat you. And then we have God's reaction to that apostasy. He says, and when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. He said, I will hide my face from them, and I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols, but I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. And how is it that God is going to move the nation of Israel to jealousy? What did Paul tell us? Through the Gentiles. The Gentiles, that olive branch that was taken off, the natural branch, and an unnatural, wild, crazy olive branch symbolizing the Gentiles was grafted in. And Paul said that that was grafted in to drive the people to jealousy, to people that are a foolish nation, Gentiles aren't a nation. They're spread out all over the place, everywhere. <clears throat> Anything that's not a Jew is a Gentile. And they're drawn to, to, to drive the people of God to jealousy, the, the nation of Israel to jealousy, because they have a relationship with the God of Israel. A relationship that God's own people don't have because they have rejected him. So God says, this is how I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to drive them to jealousy as they see the truth on the face of a Gentile nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It will consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundation of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will send against them the teeth of beasts and the poison of serpents of the dust. When I look at verses 23 and 24, and I think of the history of the nation of Israel, I have a hard time not visualizing the Holocaust and the hunger and the hardship The people that have had the hardest time on the planet earth is the Jew. More persecuted than anybody else. And we see the Lord telling them that this is how it was going to be. The sword shall destroy outside. There will be terror within. The young man and the virgin, the nursing child and the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among men. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries would misunderstand, lest they would say, our hand is high, and it's not the Lord who has done all this. God says he'll only go so far because sooner or later the enemies of Israel start thinking they're the ones who did it. Oh, it's by our mighty hand. Isn't that what King Nebuchadnezzar said? This is the kingdom that I have built. And God said, you didn't build nothing, I did it. I let you lead this kingdom, and I'll prove it to you. And King Nebuchadnezzar was crazy, living in the fields for seven years, and his kingdom remained his. You ever seen that happen in a nation before? Let's say tomorrow, 
President Obama goes crazy. Er. <coughs> and he can't talk and he's eating grass. He's walking around grazing in fields like he's a cattle. And I'm sure we'll just wait seven years, right? And when he's better in seven years, the United States will still be his. No, it doesn't work that way. But it does when God is in control. God showed Nebuchadnezzar it's by his hand and not any other. It is part of God's plan and God's purpose. So then he begins to make a plea to his people in verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies judge themselves being judges. Even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom. And of the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter, their wine is a poison of serpents, and a cruel venom of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine in recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, and for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. The Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free. And he will say to them, where are your gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. Who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise and help you. And be your refuge. God says, I'm going to take them to the point of almost utter destruction. And then I'm going to say to them, where are your gods? The ones that you've been offering the fat of your sacrifice to. Where are all the things you trusted in to save you? We see the same thing, guys, in the book of Revelation when it says God will shake everything that can be shaken. Everything that men put their hope in and say, this is what's going to save me. If I have enough money in the bank until the next day and the bank's not there. Oh, but my money's insured. Uh Uh-huh. Sure. Keep telling yourself that. Because when there's no government anymore, I'm sure that somebody will take up your case. The, The Lord lays out everything that men put their trust in will be shaken so that men will look to God to save. And that's exactly what he's saying to his people here. Where are all the things you trusted in? All your other gods, where are they? Did they save you? Did they watch over you? Did they keep you? And then he says, Now see that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. It's God. He's the one. It is I who kill and make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword 
and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh and the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentile, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversary. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Interesting that they would have a phrase in a Jewish song that says, Rejoice, O Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. And he will provide atonement for his land and his people. God has a plan for the nation of Israel. That's why Paul would declare unequivocally, and all of Israel shall be saved. The day comes when God will save the nation of Israel. All of Israel shall be saved doesn't mean that right now if you're born a Jew, you automatically have salvation. It's not what it means. The Lord says, just because you're born a Jew doesn't make you of Israel doesn't mean anything just because you say you're a son of abraham abraham's the father of faith not just of the jew they will come to see their messiah jesus christ put their trust in him and they will be saved god will provide atonement so looking ahead to jesus christ then we see moses encouragement so moses came with joshua the son of Nun. Now, after hearing this song you're pretty stoked about going to promised land right I feel like we already lost before we started to win. Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking, (coughs) excuse me, all these words to all Israel. And he said to them, set your heart on all the words which I testify among you today. And you will command your children to be careful to observe all the words of this law. Listen, for it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. Well, why am I going then? Man, it's just all ends bad. Moses says, you just hold on to the words of this song, which are prophecy. These are the things that the days ahead of you hold. And you stay in the words of this law and understand it is not a futile thing it's your life a life is in the word it's in the application of the word it's in living the word it's in devouring the word it's in making the word our everything because it is your life and by this word you will prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess God didn't say when these things would happen, did he? He just said they would. Do you understand? In essence, God is saying to them, guys, you're about to go into the land, and you're going to have victory, and I'm going to go with you, and I'm going to give you a victory. And somewhere down the future, you're all going to be worshiping false gods. So teach this song of the destruction that will come when you find yourself worshiping false gods to your kids. And to their kids. And you tell them the keeper knows in the word. 
and study the word of God and apply the word of God because in there is life. This is going to happen. But it doesn't have to happen to your generation. And if we each take the responsibility to prepare the next generation, it won't happen to them. It's going to happen. We look back in history, we've seen it happen. It did happen. And it happened pretty quick. Why? Because they didn't pay attention. The Word of God just became words on a page, and it's kind of boring and it's dumb, and I don't want to listen, but the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to do surgery on your heart, and it's able to speak to your heart the words of God, and it's able to direct you and to guide you and to lead you, but you know, I don't really want to open it, and I don't want to read it, and I don't want to put it in my life, and so we let 500 years pass before the next time we read. Shocking. That they fell into idolatry. But you see the church has been charged with a, a mission. The Lord declared to his people. Occupy till I come. Occupy. Do business. Get cracking. Get busy. Redeem the time. Share the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Every day is an opportunity. It's a, it's a moment. It's a time where we can devour the word, apply the word, teach the word, share the word, reach out to a world that is lost and rapidly approaching the brink of extinction. Because, man, on that day when it all goes south, on that day when all the world is clamoring for answers... And that fellow shows up on a white horse saying, I got a plan. That's going to go from bad to worse real quick. And I believe then it's too late for us. You know, you don't hear the church mentioned in the book of Revelation right after chapter 3. It's not there. Not mentioned. One time. Mentioned a bunch of times in the, in the first three chapters. And then it's not mentioned at all. What happened to it? What's, who's the Lord's witness when we get into the tribulation period? 144,000. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Who else? Two witnesses. Eloise and Moishe, I believe. We could argue about it any time. It doesn't matter. It's two witnesses. One of them is Elijah. You can't argue that. Elijah is coming back. Makes sense to be law and the prophets. Moses gets to come into the promised land after all. Be kind of cool. But I don't care. Could be Enoch, some people say. Because Enoch never died, but that really doesn't have much to do with it. <coughs> it will be, that's right. <laughs> it will be whoever God sends. They'll be his witnesses. Who else will be his witnesses during that time? God's going to send an angel proclaiming the everlasting gospel flying around the world, constantly, consistently proclaiming the gospel. What's the point of that? Our time's done. Our opportunity to bear witness, I think, is over. And the Lord turns to others. So we have the window of opportunity we have. Today is the day of salvation. 
God never tells his church to wait till tomorrow. He tells his church, tomorrow may never come. Do it today. Say what needs said today. Be my witness today. While you have opportunity. While you have time. Take advantage of the time you have. You only have so much time to spend in God's word, to learn God's word, to apply God's word to our life. It's never too late to start, but it's always too soon to quit. Apply it. Pour it in. Make it a part of your life. Make it a part of who you are so that we're ready. And then God goes on and gives a command to Moses in verse 48. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day and said, Get up the mountain of Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab across from Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I give the children of Israel as a possession, and die on the mountain that you ascend. Be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Because you trespass against me among the children of Israel in the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me in the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you, though you shall not go there into the land which I am giving to the children of Israel. Moses, you go up on that mountain, and when you get to the top, you're going to die. But I'm going to let you see the land you don't get to go into. Moses is a sinner. Moses is a sinner. He needs a sacrifice. What sacrifice is coming to set Moses free? Jesus Christ. On that day when Jesus is crucified, and he enters into the bowels of the earth, He's going to go to a place called Abraham's bosom. He's going to tell Moses, let's go, brother. Now the price is paid. Your sins are forgiven. Come with me. Let's get out of this dump. I got a a place prepared for you. Come to that place. So Moses is going to enter in. He'll be prepared. He's going to be okay. Will we learn from his experiences. For those who are not learning from history are doomed to repeat it. Be on our toes. Redeem the time. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time. We just come before you seeking, God, your blessing and anointing. Father, we pray that God, you would help us to have those eyes that want to see, that want to apply your word, that say, God, it's not just words on a page. It's real. I can walk in those places. I can see them. I can take pictures. (coughs) They're all there. All these people lived. I can go to Abraham's tomb from Genesis. I can go to the mountain where God buried Moses. I can go to the mountain where Aaron's tomb is. I can see them all where the Bible said they were. It's real. And it is worthy of my faith and trust and hope. So I will cling to the rock. I will hold on to Jesus. And I don't care 
how the wind blows and what craziness comes, I know the only thing that won't be moved is Jesus Christ. Lord, make us willing to shine a light so bright in these last days, to shine a light so bright when all the world is panicked and afraid and, and wondering what in the world is going on, and we have the answer. It doesn't matter what's going on. Cling to Jesus Christ, and everything will be okay. Cling to Jesus Christ. And when we stand in eternity together, we're not even going to give a second thought to the things that went that we went through here or the things that happened to us. Because we'll be with him and every wrong will be made right in Christ Jesus. Lord, give us a hunger and thirst to do your will here to be your hands and feet, to be your voice while we are called to be your voice. This is our time. This is our moment. May we be found faithful when you return. And we will give you all honor and glory, all praise for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.